Thank you, everyone. We're going to move now to our first keynote for the conference, um, uh, which will be from Karen Smith, who is uh, Labour's Shadow Minister for Health. Uh, member of Parliament, has been Member of Parliament for Bristol South since 2015 and was, of course, a former NHS manager, so actually really uh, has some ground experience on some of the issues that she'll be uh, talking about. We'll be live tweeting this event from IFG Events use, using the hashtag IFGGovernmentGov24, so please follow and tweet along. And if you have questions that you'd like me to put to Karen uh, when we get to that stage, uh, please do send in those questions via Slido. Uh, if you're watching online, if you're in the room, you can, of course, raise your hand in a time-honoured way. So the IFG is particularly interested in the plans that the parties will be putting forward this year to address widespread problems in public services, which I've been talking about in my opening remarks. Every year, we track the state of nine public services. We look at how demand for them is changing, the adequacy of their funding and the problems that they're facing. And we publish those results in our performance tracker, which is supported by SIPFA. And those services include, relevance to what Karen's going to be talking about today, GPs, hospitals, and adult and uh, child social care. In our 2023 report, which we will be talking about in more detail later, we argued that without serious action to improve public service productivity, we risk getting stuck in a doom loop with a perpetual state of crisis, burning out staff and preventing services from taking the best long-term decisions. So we're very interested to hear from Karen about Labour's plans for the NHS and social care should it win the next general election. Karen, thank you. To you. Thank you. Thank you, um, and thank you. Well, thank you for inviting Wes, um, and I'm delighted to be stepping in today. Um, and, and you've alluded to your report, Hannah, because if you want to know quite how dismal a state the Conservatives have left the country in, then you only really need to look at that Institute for Government's annual performance tracker, that report finding that the government is stuck in a public service performance doom loop, the public is experiencing firsthand the consequences of successive government's short-term policy-making, and fragility has become a defining characteristic of today's public services. In health, the demands on GPs are rising as the number of GPs is falling. Hospitals did fewer procedures and appointments in 2023 than in 2019-20, despite more funding. And in a damning indictment from an organisation as expert, respected and independent as the IFG, political turmoil in 2022 contributed to arguably the worst winter in NHS history. So let me sum up in a way that the IFG can't. The infighting, leadership coups, the instability of the Conservative Party, which gave us four health secretaries in four months, directly causes that chaos in the NHS. The report concludes, fixing the problems described in this report will take time and will not be easy. But higher standards could be achieved if services are reformed to work more productively. Such improvements will, however, require a different approach from government. And today, I want to outline how a government led by Keir Starmer will take that different report, an approach in the report. Because Keir is unlike any candidate for a prime minister our country has seen in my lifetime. His superpower is that he came to politics, in Wes's words, late in life. His superpower being that lateness in life because he was 52 when he was first elected. Full disclosure, I was 50. But he'd already reached the pinnacle, really, of the legal profession. He doesn't come from an ideological straitjacket or a factional loyalty that constrains his decisions. What matters for him is what works and what is right. He doesn't think in electoral cycles. Keir has set the project of the next Labour government a decade 
of national renewal, committing us to incredibly ambitious missions that look beyond not just this election, but the one after it. No leader of the opposition has had to prove their own worth as much as Keir has. Yet he has cleared every hurdle as he transformed the Labour Party from the wreckage he inherited four years ago. And along with Rachel Reeves and the Shadow Cabinet, he has finally answered the question which has hung around our party's necks for years. What is the point of Labour when there is no money left? The answer is that it is precisely when times are tight that Labour is most needed. We understand the value of the pound in people's pockets and how hard they work for it. So unlike the Tories, our first and last resort isn't picking the pockets of working people. And we will never be as careless as this Conservative government has been in spending the public's money. We come from public services, we rely on them. It is because Labour is rooted in our public services that we can see how they need to change. And Keir's mission-driven approach will harness all of our country's talents. This proposition has at times proved controversial. When Wes said that Labour would hold the door open for the NHS to tech, tech entrepreneurs, it sparked hysteria amongst some very online people. Now, putting aside the irony of those howls of outrage against the private sector being tapped into their Apple iPhones and posted on Elon Musk X, you have to ask, where do these people think the NHS gets its equipment from? Who do they think supplies NHS medicines? The view that the state can provide is only the state can provide was roundly rejected in 2019. And the small statism of the Conservatives has left the country in the mess we find ourselves in today. It will require a genuine partnership, business and government working together to get Britain back on track. Developers of new technology and treatments are banging on the door to the NHS. They have the potential to transform healthcare for millions of patients. Those who can afford it go private and they are already seeing the benefits. So yes, we are going to hold the door open to them and usher them through so that every patient can benefit from the fruits of the technological revolution, not just for the wealthy. Around the world, the NHS is envied for its potential for fast adoption of new medicines, technology and use of data. It's about time the NHS realised that potential. That is what Keir Starmer's mission-driven government will be about. Now, as the IFG's report makes clear, it's not just because the Conservatives are incompetent that they have failed, although they are and they have. It is their approach that's wrong. So when Labour proposed toothbrushing in schools and nurseries for three to five-year-olds, the Conservatives gave three different reasons to oppose it. George Osborne called it the nanny state. Apparently, working-class three-year-olds don't deserve the same care and support, for example, as Jacob Rees-Mogg received when he was 27. The Health Secretary said it's already happening, but then voted against it, while Andrea Leadsom, the new children's health minister, said Labour's proposal started too late because teeth begin to grow nine months before conception. Now, no wonder Rishi Sunak is so clean on maths to 18. The problem with the small statism of the Conservative Party is that it not just fails to address the moral outrage of children going to hospital to have their rotten <coughs> teeth pulled out, the number one reason for hospital admissions for six to ten-year-olds. It fails on its own terms. Hospital tooth extractions for children cost the NHS 81 million last year, up from 36 million five years earlier. With one in five children suffering from untreated decay, the costs are set to continue rising. In contrast, Labour's plan to intervene earlier and prevent tooth decay will cost just £9 million. Yet the Conservatives choose to waste taxpayers' money and put children through unnecessary misery because it fits their confused ideology. 
We see this play out across the NHS. Failure to invest in mental health means GP practices and A&E departments are full of people who have reached crisis point. Because patients can't get a GP appointment, they end up in A&E. Worse for the patient, costing up to £2.5 billion for the taxpayer. You could fill 26 hospitals with <coughs> patients in hospital beds today, unable to be discharged because there is no care available for them in the community. Worse for care for the patient at a cost of £1.7 billion for the taxpayer. The Conservatives' refusal to train enough doctors and nurses over the past 14 years hasn't just left the NHS with 121,000 vacancies and patients with record waiting lists. It has stuck the NHS with an annual bill of £3.5 billion for NHS agency staff. The Tories' timidity on public health means obesity costs the NHS £6 billion a year. Red tape that prevents health visitors administering vaccinations has left thousands of children without their MNR vaccination. Now, the allow miles have been sounding since the UK lost its measles-free status five years ago, yet the government failed to act. The cost of that failure is the deeply troubling measles outbreak we're seeing today. Strikes have cost the NHS two billion, almost certainly more than it would have cost to settle the junior doctor's strikes at the start. And across the NHS, we are paying more and getting less. That's the irony of the Conservative Party. They say they believe in a small state and low taxes, yet they have left our country with the highest tax burden since the 1950s. The NHS budget is 169 billion this year, yet record numbers of patients are waiting for treatment, waiting longer than ever before. We have to do better with the money the public gives to the NHS. If we don't, then the pressures coming down the track caused by our ageing population and rising chronic disease could overwhelm and even bankrupt the health service. That's why we are declaring a war on waste in the NHS. Now, every patient sees that there is waste in the system. Whether it's appointments missed because the letter arrived too late in the post, tests that are already being done at the GP having to be repeated at hospital or wasting a day's work to go to an outpatient appointment at a hospital that could have been done more locally, more conveniently. Everyone knows the inconveniences and inefficiencies, especially those working in the NHS. They see it every day, from frozen computers at the end of a long shift to the unnecessary box ticking exercise that wastes staff time. Now, across the service, it adds up to enormous waste of money, money that we just don't have a waste of time that is running out and a waste of potential because the NHS has so much going for it. This is a cultural problem set from the top. I don't just mean the carelessness with which the Conservatives wasted 15 billion on unusable PPE, the recklessness with which they crashed the economy or the corruption which saw them hand out crony contracts so their mates could get rich quick off the back of the pandemic. It's the caution, the lack of bravery on taking not taking those necessary reforms. The Conservatives' cowardice sees billions of pounds spent in the wrong places and billions more in potential gains. So when West Streeting announced that Labour would cut red tape to bring back the family doctor, I was genuinely shocked that the Conservatives opposed it. GPs are currently measured against more than 50 different targets. These experienced doctors are made to do millions of tick box appointments. They're even made to fill out forms about how burnt out they are. Now, if ministers bothered to ask the GPs why they're so exhausted, they would know it's largely down to burdensome bureaucracy grinding them down. Yet Andrea Leadsom insisted these targets are important, and Victoria Atkins tweeted, what would Wes cut? Well, this knee-jerk opposition to change reveals that the Conservatives are now the defenders of a broken status quo. 
They are the enemies of reform. In Singapore, hospitals run programmes called Get Rid of the Stupid Stuff. Now, as someone who did work in the NHS, let me tell you, staff in this country are not shy about pointing out the stupid stuff they are made to do. So today, Labour set out 10 ways in which the NHS funds are wasted, being spent in the wrong places, or in which unnecessary red tape is keeping doctors from spending more time with patients. From the 200 million on paper and postage, a decade after Jeremy Hunt promised to go paperless, to the 300 million cost of Mr. outpatient appointments caused by NHS clerical errors. If the government doesn't act on this, then we will. We will set the red tape challenge for GPs and remove the unnecessary bureaucracy and targets which GPs say take up their time and takes them away from the things that really matter. In return, we will bring back that family doctor so that patients can see their regular GP each appointment if they choose to. Now, no one understands where the waste is in the system than those working in the NHS. All parts of the service should become reformers in driving down wasteful costs. Labour will end the Department of Health's expensive addiction to management consultants, costing over £600 million last year. Because we have to get better results consulting nurses, doctors and staff on the ground. Cutting out waste shouldn't be outsourced. Every part of the NHS must have a collective focus on getting more out of what we put in. This is critical, not just to keeping costs down, but to improving care for patients. Now, some in the NHS are already showing that simple changes can make a big difference. One trust has cut one third of missed appointments by texting patients with an appointment reminder and allowing patients to reply if they can no longer make it. If this was adopted across the health service, hundreds of millions of pounds could be saved and millions of appointments freed up. If we are successful at the next election, our job will be to take the best of the NHS to the rest of the NHS. The Conservatives have refused to reform, refused to intervene early and treated taxpayers' money with <coughs> utter carelessness. But with a government that understands the value of public money, that is brave enough to undertake the reforms needed, that knows prevention is better than cure, the crisis in the NHS can be turned around. I'm not focusing on ways today just to bash the government. I would never do that. I want to give the public hope. Hope that the NHS can be saved. The money that's wasted today can be used to get the NHS back on its feet tomorrow, and Labour has a serious plan to do just that. Now, I do accept, although it's a very well-informed audience, that not every person can recite all of Labour's plans off by heart. I cannot accept it, though, when I hear media say Labour is yet to set out its policies. It's clear why the Conservatives keep saying this. They don't want the public to hear about Labour's plans. They're worried that voters might like the sound of them. But it isn't true. Just look at what we've already announced for the NHS alone. Two million more operations and appointments at evenings and weekends, doubling the number of NHS scanners, 700,000 more urgent dentistry appointments, recruiting new dentists to the most underserved areas, 8,500 new medical health professionals, mental health support in every school, a mental health hub in every community. All paid for by abolishing tax breaks for the wealthiest. Any one of those would make a real difference. But together, they will be transformational for patients who are stuck on waiting lists, suffering from the impact of lockdown on their mental health or unable to book an appointment with a dentist. More than just gripping the immediate crisis, Labour has set out our long-term reform agenda. The three big shifts 
we need to make the NHS sustainable for the future so it becomes a neighbourhood health service as much as a national health service. A digital service, not an analogue service. A preventative service, not just a sickness service. And we've worked up the first steps to bring about these changes. Earlier this month, Keir Starmer led the charge on public health with our Children's Health Action Plan. Keir is willing to take on the inevitable cries of nanny state because our children's health is too important. The plan would mark a step change in our nation's approach to prevention, not just toothbrushing, but protecting children from those who would cut their lives short, from vaping companies to the fast food industry. And you don't just have to take our word for it. Boris Johnson's health minister, Lord Bethel, said, and I quote, we're seeing Labour and Keir Starmer mapping out a proposition based on healthiness and longevity. This chimes with voters about their kids, sorry, worried about their kids, parents and their own futures. The Conservatives would be wise to take note. Lord Bethel felt so strong about our plan, he managed to find his phone to tweet about it. Now, Labour's Fit for the Future Fund will mean patients in every hospital can benefit from AI. Our reforms will get the latest technology into the hands of the NHS staff far quicker than today. And we will give power to the patients through the NHS app. 31 million people have the app in their pockets. Think of the good that could be done if it was used properly. And with Labour, patients will be able to take charge of their own healthcare. If you can track your order on Amazon, you should be able to manage, schedule and track appointments for the NHS. Doing so would cut millions of missed appointments every year. All patients will receive notifications when they become eligible for vaccinations and screenings. When they are diagnosed with conditions like asthma or diabetes, they will be told what, their care should, what care they should receive from the NHS. So it's not just the wealthy, well-informed, who can hold the service to account. And they'll be able to see which practices in their area are providing the best care for their conditions so they can choose to switch if they want to. Labour will trial neighbourhood health centres in every part of the country so patients can get the help they need closer to their doorstep. These will bring together healthcare professionals like family doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, dentists and mental health specialists under one roof. Patients could get treated for minor injuries like cuts and sprains or have a scan all without having to go into hospital. By bringing these existing services together, we will stop patients being pushed from pillar to post and take pressure off hospitals and GPs at the same time. This is the shift of focus of our healthcare that Labour needs to bring about over the next decade, out of the hospital and into the community. It is more expensive to treat patients in hospitals, less convenient for the patient, and much of what is done in hospital could be done closer to home. To be an outpatient, you shouldn't have to go into hospital. The clue really is in the name. Take eye care. 619,000 patients are waiting for treatment. 17,000 have been waiting more than one year while their eyesight worsens. Most are waiting for routine tests, scans and assessments, simple appointments, could, which could be done in an opticians. Patients are left with a desperate choice, wait and risk losing their eyesight or pay to go private. This is a two-tier healthcare system emerging under the Tories. It's unacceptable and we will end it. So I can announce today that the next Labour government would seek to negotiate a deal with high street opticians to deliver NHS outpatient appointments. There are 6,000 high street opticians in England equipped with a specialist staff and kit that can see patients faster. We will put them to work to beating that Tory backlog, free up hospital specialists to treat the patient in serious need, all at greater convenience to patients. As these are routine appointments, it will be less expensive to the taxpayer for them to be delivered on the high street than in the hospital. 
This is the sort of partnership that Keir's mission-driven government is about, the state and the private sector working together to give patients the treatment they need. So as we get close to the general election, I keep being told how in 1997, which I do remember, Labour had big, bold, ambitious pledges that led to our landslide victory. So looking back at our pledge card and rereading that promise, that promise on health was not to deliver the lowest waiting lists and the highest patient satisfaction in history, which we did. It was a commitment to cut waiting lists by 100,000 patients by sacking a few NHS managers. When Tony Blair appointed Alan Milburn as health minister after the 1997 election, he asked him to come up with a health policy because we didn't have one. Today, people are even more cynical about the power of politics to change things than they were 27 years ago. I would argue that cynicism is a bigger opponent for Labour at this election than the Conservative Party. That's why we've been so careful with our commitments. Everything we have promised is fully costed, fully funded, funding better healthcare for the many by ending those tax breaks for the few. But do not confuse a lack of big spending commitments with not having a plan. In contrast to 1997, Labour is approaching this election with a plan to grip the immediate crisis in the health service, a reform agenda for the next 10 years, the first steps of that reform already in place, and an ambitious missions over the next decade, ending long waits in the NHS, tackling the biggest killers and building a healthier Britain. Ours is a serious plan, not just for investment, but reform. A garden that's been neglected for 14 years doesn't just need the hose pipe turning on, it needs tending, pruning, it takes time, it's an ongoing project, but after a lot of hard work, it blossoms. If you want proof that Labour has changed, that metaphor isn't mine. It came from a Labour Party member speaking from the conference stage in Liverpool this year. Keir Starmer has changed the Labour Party, winning the argument for reform, and now he's ready to change the country. And if you want proof that Labour's plan is credible, then just look at the response of the Conservative Party. They haven't said it won't work. They haven't said it's risky or that it's unaffordable. They can't find fault with it, so they pretend it doesn't exist. By ignoring Labour's plan, they're giving it the biggest seal of approval possible, confirming that this is the serious plan for change that the country needs, a plan that will deliver a decade of national renewal for our country's health, a plan to get our NHS back on its feet and make it fit for the future. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Karen. Um, so we're going to uh, move to some questions now. Um, I'm just going to put a few uh, myself. Then there will be a roving mic, uh, which my colleague Maddie is poised to take around the room. Um, we'll take questions uh, in tranches of two or three. Um, and please, uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us who you are and where you're from, then that can be very helpful. Um, if there's anyone in the adjoining room who wants to come through and ask a question, please just come and loiter at the door. Uh, my colleague uh, Sam will help you there. Um, and uh, yeah, if you're online, uh, please do send in your questions through Slido. Um, okay, so a, effectively, we're hearing a, a, a war on waste. There has been a, a long and undistinguished history of red tape challenges. How is yours going to be different? 
I mean, I would agree that, that there has been a long and distinguished history, some of which I was involved in um, uh, working as a manager. Um, the real difference, I think, is not just focusing on, you know, better supply chains and sa saving money from buying better and bulk buying and all that stuff. Our, our look is really at what matters to patients and the public. And, and, and I think there's probably not many people in this audience that hasn't been at the end of that dreadful outpatient booking system. You go to a GP and it's like you fall into this black hole of a referral that you don't know where it is. It is about moving from the analogue to the digital. It's about harnessing what is already out there, that, as I said, people banging on the door to make our system more efficient and making that happen. And I think that's what the front line wants. So that's working with them. And I think, that, I think that's a fundamental difference. It's looking much more from the patient and it's working with the front line to just fast track what we know can happen to make it happen faster. I mean, is it not just really a way to say, you know, we don't want to get into questions of, of, of taxation and, and the cost of really doing substantial reform, so, so this is what we're going to do instead? Um, well, you will know our, our position about uh, that, as Rachel Rees is very clear about our, our, our fiscal rules and the way we want to approach this election. That's because the public, and, and you know, as outlined again, up to £169 billion worth on the NHS, we are asking people to spend more and more. The government have put in billions more in the last few years to get bigger waiting lists, to get a worse service. That is unacceptable. It's unacceptable to me. I'm sure it's unacceptable to everyone in, in the room. And if we are to build this service fit for the future for the 21st century to make it survive and thrive, then it has to work for people. They have to see that it's working efficient, efficiently and for them and it isn't, isn't doing that waste. And people just don't understand why you're spending £200 million on, on letters and things in the post uh, waiting, you know, half an hour an outpatient appointment for a letter to be printed off a system when you're sitting on your phone in that same outpatient appointment, which is something that happened to me recently. It just doesn't, it, it just doesn't compute with people. So asking them to pay more whilst tolerating that level of service, I think, is unacceptable dem democratically, actually. People will not wear it. So they will not wear the idea that they should be paying even more when they can see that in the system. And that's why we really want to focus on that. So... We can't keep putting more money in, you're saying, but the NHS workforce plan implies real-term spending increases of 3.6% a year. So would the Labour government spend less than that? Well, the government have been very clear that when they put forward that plan, which we had been asking for them to do for a very long time, so we were delighted to see them finally get round to it, that the money was there. So we have to take them at the word on that, that the NHS England and the Department of Health are working on that workforce plan and that it has been, that has been costed. I mean, if that's not, that's something when you get in and uncover the books, that may happen, absolutely. Um, but that's what they have said, that's what they are working on. They are working with um, the universities and training providers, et cetera, et cetera, to deliver that. So we would like to hear more from them on that detail. Have to wait and see. You didn't mention social care once in your speech. Does Labour have any uh, plans for how it wants to reform social care? Well, the thrust of the speech is really about about the waste and the, and making and I guess indicating our direction of travel around focusing on what's there at the moment and doesn't work and our offer to the voting public because we have an election we are hoping to win. Um, we will only win that if the public trust us and can see that we are spending public money well. Um, social care is a different proposition, clearly. Um, is there waste in the social care system? Um, well, certainly in terms of people um, spending time in hospital, 
and needing to get out. Um, supporting local government to enable them to do that. There are various um, models that are trying to do that. Um, so there isn't the sort of same sort of waste in the system, and we've already indicated that we would want to stabilise that system very quickly in terms of particularly the workforce, which is the biggest problem that social care system has, that there just aren't people staying in jobs, um, there is no career structure, and uh, providers again, some of whom are not financially very sustainable. That's something we would, we would, we've already indicated we would like to look at. But the crucial thing for social care is stabilising that workforce. So what do you make of the government's most recent proposals around immigration and stopping social care workers being able to bring their dependents to the UK? Well, look, they've got themselves into a terrible mess with the entire system, haven't they, around um, putting people on that come-to-work workforce and then changing the rules. It just furthered, I mean, uh, at heart for patients requiring social care, people and their families desperately in need of social care. And I guess, looking around the room, a lot of us are involved in uh, supporting people in that system. Uh, it's about the instability of the system. I see this in my own constituency. We all see it in our families and friends. Providers not turning up, providers going bust, people not having enough staff on duty, uh, staff only staying for a few months because they get a better job at the supermarket down the road. So the entire thing is part of their entire mess around not looking at a long-term plan to stabilise that workforce and meet the coming demand that they knew was coming. OK, um, you talk, and this is something I guess you have experience of yourself, there's a lot of variation in practice between different hospitals and, and you talk about um, how uh, you would sort of take the best of the NHS and, and, and uh, disperse that throughout the rest of the NHS but we often hear how difficult it is to spread best practice between different parts of the NHS. How will you convince NHS trusts to do that where people have failed in the past? So, I mean, the degree of variation in a system based on human <coughs> beings is, is there is inevitability around that. I think we do, but I don't think patients and the public really know what happens in their system and their local trust or their local GP practice or community service may be radically different from somewhere else. So I think patient knowledge and patient empowerment is really important in that. And again, technology can help, can help with some of that. But we very much um, want to go with the grain of Patricia Hewitt's review around ICSs and support local systems to develop um, the future models. And, now, and, and systems work differently. Um, and they come from a different starting point. They prioritise things sometimes differently. That, that might be OK in places if it's population need is very different um, so we very much want to not you know sort of you know we're, we're, we're not still with Nibevan and the rattling bedpan um, we recognize that people live locally they work locally they deliver services locally and we want to make sure that because they involve local government back to your social care point that best practice is managed in that local system and share that across the country now there are various ways in which we can do that I think one of the things we need to really focus on is understanding which systems are not performing on the right sorts of things in the right sorts of places and those are the sorts of conversations we would be having with those ICS systems we, we want the best to go forward fast um, and then pull the others with them okay I'm going to take some questions from the room now um, Maddie can you come to this lady here with the glasses are you taking one at a time? Or? I'll do them in threes if that's all right. 
Thank you. I'm Katie Bramall-Stainer. I chair the England GP Committee for the BMA, and I'm extremely uh, pleased to hear these positive signs, especially for GPs like me, to have less time box-ticking and spend more time with my patients. In England, GPs deliver 400 million appointments per annum. We see one in two of the population every single month for 8% of the NHS funding pie. So how do Labour see bringing greater capacity? Because is access the key issue here when we're seeing one in two of the population every single month, or is it a capacity problem? Because we've heard bringing funding from hospitals into primary care before, but no government's really been able to achieve that. But we're very excited to hear more about your plans. Thank you. Um, this gentleman right at the back, Maddie. Hi, I'm Martin George from the Local Government Chronicle. Um, just to pick up on the workforce in social care point um, that was raised, um, would the National Care Service seek to align terms and conditions between NHS staff and social care staff? If so, how would you pay for it? And do you expect councils will be employing more social care staff directly? Thank you. This gentleman in the front, Manny. Thank you. Hi. <coughs> Sorry, uh, Ian Watson from BBC uh, News. Um, can I ask what you thought Wes Streeting meant when he said we're too nostalgic for the NHS as a former NHS manager? Um, <coughs> and can I also ask slightly off topic <laughs> for this uh, gathering, but not at Westminster? Um, it looks like the leader of the opposition wasn't informed about the airstrikes in the Red Sea. Um, do you think it should have been, and is there a concern in your party that we're now perhaps seeing a concerted campaign rather than a one-off operation? Okay, thank you. So we have, um, is uh, are the problems with GPs a question of capacity, uh, uh, or is, um, yeah, is, is, is it a capacity problem, and how would you, what would you do to address that? Um, aligning NHS <coughs> and social care terms and conditions, is that something you're, that you're planning to do? Um, and uh, what do we mean by people being too nostalgic about the NHS? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I'm just going to bag and certainly report back to Wes that the BMA and GP committee has said positive things about our <laughs> approach today. Um, thank you for that. Um, I mean, I, I, I worked a lot with GPs and GP commissioning with GPs and system over a long time. And um, I think capacity is, is a problem and has been for some time. And we've known about that for some time. And yes, and when, if I, I'll, throw, I'll throw you the line, Hannah, about other things that have been said before around uh, bringing all services together under one roof in a neighbourhood and GPs will say, well, that's us. Um, so I think capacity is a problem. Um, a diverse workforce, I think we still, in that direction of travel, it does help and support people in different roles. The workforce plan has different roles in that um, and we certainly want to keep following that because we want people to have the good jobs that exist in the NHS. But at the end of the day, GPs are highly trained, um, highly experienced, um, individuals that have sought to take a particular pathway which is working 
you know, in their room by themselves, seeing people every 10 minutes in their local community. And, and, and I think we really want to keep going with the grain of that enthusiasm for working locally and use, that, use those specialists properly. And that does mean, yes, they need to be accountable because they are private contractors. I think people often forget that. But they do need to be accountable for uh, taxpayers' money. But supporting that capacity is important. I think the, the, the other question you alluded to is the balance of... Uh, funding for primary care and acute sector care, care which is um, always sort of you know fluctuated sort of eight to eleven percent at different times depending on the overall budget um, and I think that's one of the things we'd like to see the ICS is working very strongly with because if we want to deliver more neighborhood services then they do need to look at where the funding is relatively in the system again in my speech, I talked about outpatient appointments being in a hospital. They're not outside a hospital, are they? So that's, that's, that's where some of that can happen in a conversation with the ICSs, and we need to support GPs and primary care to be able to have that conversation locally as well and, again, learn from the best. Um, the, the local, to local government co chronicle colleague, um, I mean, look, the, 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 the alignment of terms and conditions over time is, is, is we need to have a better match. Now, we're certainly not saying, and I do bear the scars of agenda for change, uh, working it through, it takes forever, all that stuff takes forever. Our focus is on patients. We do need to get to a better system whereby we are not losing um, some of those social care staff, some of them at the, the start of their careers, but some have been working for 20 years and they basically earn 20 pence more in the pound than someone starting or working up the road at the supermarket. So better alignment in local communities um, is somewhere where we'd like to, we'd like to get to. Um, but we are not currently proposing a massive, um, you know, a new agenda for change on, on that same basis. That's something we'd want to be working with colleagues on and obviously with the trade unions as well for the future. Um, we, we haven't looked particularly at um, councils definitely employing more staff. Again, these are conversations that um, will be had over time. Um, some councils do. We really are interested in what works. We're not being overly prescriptive about our approach to government and some of these issues. And finally to Ian, yes, and to nostalgic, I think we've talked about that sort of romanticised. It's, it's, it's so precious. It is in the DNA of, of the Labour Party, that's true. We are very proud, despite his rattling bedpan, which we're not going to have, of the work that Nye Bevan did and the politics of that time, which I can talk about writ large, um, about showing what the will of politics and governments can do. But... It's a long time ago, isn't it? 75 years ago. And in terms of what we mean by not being too nostalgic is that actually that, for example, the outpatient model I've talked about this morning would be recognised by anybody working in the system and experiencing the system pretty much over those 75 <coughs> years. And we live our lives very differently. And the system was set up when we all died at around the age of 62 and, 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 and is very different. So we're very much forward-facing into the future using those principles, recognising that politics makes change, but recognising also because people are paying so much more for it and we can do so much more. I mean, Nye Bevan, if you thought about genomic testing, I mean, you can't, you can't get our heads around that, can we? So <coughs> that's what we mean about not being too nostalgic. And just very quickly, um, Ian, um, and for the rest of the audience, no, we weren't briefed um, on the usual terms for that. And I... I've lost track of the last hour, but we would expect something to come before Parliament today to make very clear about that secondary action. Thank you. I'm going to take a couple of questions from online. Um, question from Sophie Metcalf. Does Labour have a long-term plan to reduce obesity? 
Uh, the, 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 we've heard about a commitment to ban junk food advertising <coughs> before the watershed and online. That's a welcome first step, but does Labour have a wider strategy to improve diet-related health? And a question from James from Diabetes UK. Um, the latest NHS figures suggest over 46,000 excess deaths involving diabetes, with the mortality risk for those in the most deprived communities higher than those in the least deprived. What will Labour do to tackle these inequalities? And I'll take one more question from the room, Justin. Olivia Artley, GB News, but I'm also representing the political broadcast pool. Um, doctors have said that your plan to schedule scans and operations for the weekends is unrealistic because of the immense cost of paying everyone involved <coughs> over time. Do you guarantee that it will really happen? And again, a bit off topic from the pool. Um, why does it matter that Keir Starmer gets a heads up about strikes? Okay, so obesity, uh, diabetes and uh, weekend working... Yeah, I think so. The first two, I think, um, are obviously heavily related. I mean, I'm sure, again, this well informed audience has gone line by line through our uh, healthcare mission, which was uh, unveiled back in May. And approach to public health and recognition that good public health really runs very strongly through all of that mission. Um, a lot of that is obviously delivered in, in local government and by private sector and community groups um, in terms of. Uh, access to parks and leisure, recognising that um, good health and exercise as well as diet and, 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 and drinks, etc., etc., is good for us and helps us combat some of those conditions, particularly diabetes, which is, and I see this in my own community, around diabetes and uh, COPD, for example, as the legacy of smoking. Uh, one of the reasons in government we banned smoking, it is the poorest that bear the greatest burden with regard to these public health measures. And we are very attuned to that. Um, I think you've got Paul Johnson on, on later on today. I did a panel with Paul during conference when we were looking at the, uh, the, the correlation between educational standards and ill health and disability and how much disability is costing us in terms of both payments for welfare, but most importantly, the lost opportunities that those people have because of ill health disability uh, caused by, by some, some of these conditions. But largely, um, things that are often beyond people's control as well, and that is about access to um, other, other things like leisure and so on, working with local councils. So we've said we would have a, a, a mission board across departments. Now, I, I, Hannah's going to be particularly sceptical watching governments trying to deliver cross-government cross work. It's incredibly difficult to get out of silos. Um, I, I've been on the a public account select committee for the last few years, scrutinising the cabinet office who are supposed to be doing this. We recognise it's a really, really hard thing to do, but that's why we can't deliver everything from Whitehall. This has to be delivered locally in partnerships with local authorities, voluntary organisations, private sector on the ground, which is why we, we are keen on developing ICSs to pull some of this stuff together. Um, and a colleague from Diabetes UK, absolutely, we see that all the time. Most Labour MPs represent constituencies with high levels of deprivation, and we see that in our surgeries, and we see that in the wasted opportunities that there are for people. So it is a wider look at um, obesity and the, and the issues that arise to diabetes in the round. Um, yeah, I don't know which particular doctor said that, colleague from GB News, which particular doctor said that. Um, we work with... We, we, we don't sit in a room, none of us, um, sit in a room and decide on a, a new, bright, shiny idea... Um, everything that we discuss, we're meeting people um, inside the sector and, and you know, advisors and think tanks, etc., to get the expert advice. 
or what is already being done inside the system and rolling it out. So we don't just make stuff up. Um, so this is happening in, in, in certain places. That's why I said earlier, we want to take the best to the rest. And that's how we want to, want to make it work. And that's how we've costed it to, to make it happen. I mean, many places are doing weekend working and are, are getting through the list better than others. So that's what we want to try and do. Um, and should Keir Starmer's, just on the, uh, the, the other issue, Keir's constitutional position as leader of the official opposition uh, in normal circumstances, as we did for the first strike, is to be briefed on Privy Council terms. And, and we've been very clear that these issues, after in immediate action or urgent action, of course, uh, is done on those terms, Parliament should be, should be um, should, the Prime Minister should come to Parliament. That is his job. Okay, I'm going to take another very, very quick round of quick questions. So, gentleman in front, so where is that? I'll try to be quick. Uh, Dave from Health Service Journal. Um, one common view you will have come across in, in NHS leadership and management is that uh, a flip side to um, the growth of community services and primary services and, and the development of technology, the, the other side of the coin is sometimes centralising acute um, hospital services, maternity, A&E, uh, elective care to try, and, to try and get waiting lists down, create um, elective hubs and so on. But of course, um, NHS leaders very often run into to problems with elected politicians and who, who are, of course, often representing their, their local public um, or, or wanting to get elected will, will resist that. I think a lot of integrated care systems are uh, developing those kind of plans, gearing up for a new government um, at the moment. Do you, do you think that's a kind of outdated view that actually those kind of centralisations don't normally help reconfigurations or... If you, if you think they are sometimes necessary, what's your position on where politicians should be on that going into the election? Thank you. Chris at the back. Good morning, I'm Chris Morris. I'm the Chief Executive of Full Fact. Um, what plans does Labour have for tackling health misinformation more effectively? I mean, it is, it is a, as I'm sure you're aware, rife, and it does damage public health, and I guess the... Um, recent outbreak of measles in the West Midlands is the latest example of that. Thank you. And there's one gentleman at the back over here, Manny. Thank you. Jack Newman, University of Bristol. Um, I want to ask another question about health prevention. So I work for the Trude Research Project that calculates the significant cost to the NHS of poor urban development decisions around housing, transport, land use, etc. So how would the Mission Delivery Board ensure that other government departments and other parts of government are embedding preventive health in their policy making? Thank you. Great. Wow. So, yeah. joining up on prevention, um, health misinformation, and what's your view on centralising acute services? Yeah, so um, if we go to Dave at the HSJ first. Um, so, I guess you mean in reconfigurations in local, local systems, so without um, re-rehearsing lots of old arguments. I mean, we, and we argued this in the latest Health and Social Care Act Committee, that the, the system that was in the four-step system, which don't ask me to repeat exactly the four steps, but the four-step system agreed many years ago about um, getting the expertise on the ground and making the business case and the decision locally and then bringing it up the food chain was working pretty well. Because it is, of course, necessary for um, the hospitals to modernise and bring services together for the benefit of patients at some time. But I've always argued that if people do that 
in full knowledge and um, with good, good evidence, well communicated, bringing the public with you, then the public are rational people at the end of the day and will recognise that something is better if it's shown to be better. I think the service has not always been good at that communication with patients and the public about why you need to change things. The, the great example, of course, is stroke services in, in, in London, and it's taken other parts of the country longer to bring together stroke services in a way that works for patients, that brings all the expertise uh, to the right place um, because people worry about losing their local systems. Why do people worry about losing their local hospital? Because we've learned over time that you often lose things and you don't gain things. So I think there is enough knowledge in the system to be able to make some rational dis discussions with people where it's necessary. And ICSs would need to demonstrate that in, in, in that way that it benefited benefited patients and the public, but that we were focusing hugely talented and specialist people in the specialist system, and that where we needed to have more local, more neighbourhood systems, that's the direction of travel we want to go, working with our GP colleagues in primary and community care, using technology to say, well, you know, what can we, what can we do differently rather than just reproviding what we already have in different buildings and I think that's a, that's a, that, that is a key message. People need to think differently about how you provide services, what you need for the future, rather than a like-for-like. Like. And we have to all bring the patients and the public with us on that. They have, people have to be able to see the benefit. That's not an easy job. Um, but I do think it's important also, that as clear as having that four-step system, that the system does talk to local elected leaders as well. Um, and that hasn't always been the case. That has infuriated Conservative MPs in the House of Commons as well as Labour MPs in the House of Commons under the system in, in, in the last few years. Um, Lansley reforms in particular did really cut out that need to talk to local elected politicians about changes. It's often very difficult to get a straight answer on behalf of your constituents and that can't be acceptable either. Um, Chris from Full Fact. Um, you know, the measles is, is a really good case in point and I don't know if you watched the um, urgent question that we got yesterday with the Minister about the measles outbreak and some of that misinformation. Now, I criticised the government for losing our measles-free status. It was coming up the track and we would like to have things like health visitors being able to vaccinate children, make it much more accessible. But I would agree with the Conservative Minister when she was talking about misinformation um, and bad evidence um, that about creating concern and worry about people. So we do need to get that right. And it comes back to that online safety bill and, and, and so on, doesn't it, as well, that it's about the platforms as well, not being allowed to um, put forward misinformation, particularly on some areas of, of public health. And I think that's the sort of area we'd like to be looking at. Um, and lovely to see colleagues from, from Bristol. Um, we get everywhere in the, in, in the room, and that sounds like a really interesting piece of work. Um, and absolutely, I mean, I've made a look at housing. I mean, you know, poor housing, poor quality housing. We're hearing a lot now about mould, private rented sector, which so many people are dependent on. Um, there are some good landlords, of course, but there are so many poor properties. Um, my inbox, again, at the weekend, absolutely full of people struggling with mould in private housing, um, getting onto the clothes, young children, asthma. We've run a series of projects using local pharmacies and local, local organisations in Bristol to look at warm homes and tackling some of that. That's, that's front and centre of our proposal around... Um, the green prosperity and retrofitting houses and making them fit for the future. It's a very basic component of some good health is to have a decent house in which you 
doesn't make you ill. Uh, and, and getting that right across government is really important. But it really has to happen locally, which is why we want to see that sort of thing happening in the ICSs. Great. OK, well, I think we could go on for hours, but we, unfortunately we can't because we have an excellent uh, panel to move on to very shortly on our performance tracker report. So I'm sure lots of people who have been here in, uh, interested to hear from Karen will be interested in that panel. Um, can you join me all in thanking Karen, especially for Thank stepping you. in at such a <laughs> So there will be a video and sound recording available shortly of that event on the IFQ website. Um, and uh, thanks again to Grant Thornton for sponsoring the event today. Uh, we've got a very quick coffee break, uh, and then we'll be coming back, as I say, at uh, quarter past, please, uh, for our next um, panel event. Thank you. <laughs>